how did I get here? How did I get to Portland, Oregon in, in uh, 2020? And that starts um, for me back in, in Los Angeles. I, I was born in, uh, in LA and uh, came up in, in, in the punk scene in, in Los Angeles, the punk and, you know, reggae ska, uh, you know, they were all one big scene in, in Los Angeles in the late 70s and in the early 80s. You know, we were influenced by uh, a lot of the music coming out of out of England, and then the hardcore scene in, in LA, right? So it, it wasn't unusual to go see uh, Black Flag in uh, Orange County on on Friday. Try to make your way up to Hollywood on on Sunday night to to see a two tone band or or a ska band trying to be a two-tone band. So I came up like in the punk scene in LA and it was a, it was a volatile scene. It was, uh, I think, accurately described as tribal, right? In, in the sense that it was uh, featured a number of gangs, right? With, within the punk scene, there was, while not initially, quickly became a lot of kind of uh, nihilistic violence within that scene. It was a fun scene, but I think we have to remember it was also a very hard uh, scene. And as that punk scene in, in Los Angeles began to grow and expand, it began to attract increasingly folks out of the suburbs who probably weren't punk rockers like a year or two before, you know, but were attracted to the energy of the music. Um, didn't kind of understand the the liberatory politics of punk in, in a lot of ways. And so came with things that they were raised in, um, you know, steeped in, in racism and, and xenophobia and, and misogyny. And those things began to kind of inundate the scene. Folks would actually come to punk shows just to have physical fights. Some of them came with very racist uh, ideas about who belonged in, that, in those music scenes, who didn't. And many of us were left with a choice, right? Was either defend the, the music scene we had come up in and meant so much to us, right? Or to allow these folks to, to take it over. And uh, folks decided to, to fight for the thing they loved. And that served, uh, wasn't only happening in LA, that was happening in Minnesota, that was happening in the Bay Area, in Oakland, in, in New York, in Boston, and in, in DC. And it launched what, what I often call the silent war. Literally for a decade, the punk scene was a battleground between hardcore white nationalists and uh, those of us who began to identify ourselves as anti-racist or, or anti-fascist, right? We were, we were anti-Nazi and we weren't political, right? I think that's an important piece, right? We were, it wasn't ideological, it was values, right? Folks were telling us who our friends could or could not be and where we could or could not be. And those weren't values that we were willing to, to embrace. And for nearly a decade, uh, violence raged along both coasts as folks tried to establish whether the punk music scene would be uh, a, a white nationalist, white power influence scene, or one that really strove towards inclusion. And that's what I came up in. That is the scene that really helped me to understand that sometimes we have to stand up for the things we think are important 
right? We didn't understand how to do that well. We only understood to do it in the best ways we could. Um, uh, but that has guided me ever since. Yeah, so I decided to, to head up to Portland in the, in the mid-80s. Um, I and four other friends uh, move up. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm coming up, I, I am in this band that eventually goes on to become um, known as Sublime, right? And uh, it's like my one claim to the fame, but you know, I like to point out the band became famous after I left, right? And I can I can truly confess the music became a lot better after I left too. But you know, we we had we had a lot of fun like fusing. I don't know if I should apologize, you know, for being part of the element that created third wave ska, you know, or or um, uh, or embrace the praise, right? But that's what we were doing, you know. I just, I was a working poor kid, right? I mean, you know, at best, right? My, my life was working class, um, but you know, primarily working poor, right? I mean, minimum wage jobs, uh, uh, day labor jobs, right? That, that's what I did to kind of pay my weekly rent, right? I paid rent by, by the week in uh, a one room, Kind of uh, motel, you know. I was I was uh, just trying to survive and and make it every day, um, and uh, trying to find ways to be creative and, and to bring meaning to my life. I, I think like most folks, and um, but you know, you know, things started to really turn sour in California, right? The the punk scene was imploding on itself. You know, crystal meth and, and crack cocaine, heroin began to like reemerge in, in these music scenes in very uh, like harsh ways. I watched friends uh, go from folks I, I truly trusted to uh, uh, folks who had, you know, completely lost their way and in a, in a matter of months. And so things began to deteriorate really badly there, you know, the economy was bad, right? I had a dead end job and, you know, I had a couple of friends who were moving up to uh, Oregon to go to the university of Oregon. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to move up with them, right? They're probably the smarter ones, right? There was, it was um, I mean, it was just, things were, were just not livable and sustainable. And so my friends asked me, and I love these friends, right? These are some of my closest friends in uh, high school and post high school. And so I told them no, right? I was like, why would I ever leave, La like who would leave Los Angeles, right? I, you know, why would I ever leave, you know, Los Angeles? I'm, you know, and I think I said something like, you know, I'm gonna live and die here in, in LA and um and so I declined but one night I was working like the graveyard shift and I like to tell this story give a little nod over there but you know I was listening and um all of a sudden on the radio like it was, it was like two in the morning around two in the morning and all of a sudden on the radio station I think it was like you know KROQ or KNAC uh the specials uh, came up on the radio and it was the song Do Nothing, right? And um, I was just listening to the lyrics and it just struck me like, if I didn't leave LA, I was never going to see the age of 25. I just, that's not where my life was heading. And I actually wanted to be older than 25. 
right? And so I called up my friends that night, like, like two something in the morning. And I said, I'm moving up to Eugene, Oregon with you. But now if you could have looked at my head, I, I can be, I'm embarrassed to, to kind of say, but I'll be honest. You know, when I tried to imagine Oregon, all I could picture was San Francisco, right? A bunch of trees and the Space Needle, which isn't even in Oregon, but up in Seattle, Washington, right? And I mean, I just had no image of what Oregon would be. And I remember asking folks, like, was there cable? Was there electricity? You know, was there McDonald's, right? Um, and, you know, folks might be laughing, but I had just had no idea, right? And there was a lesson in that. I just had never met anyone from Oregon. I had never been in Oregon. I had never learned anything about Oregon. So the, I couldn't imagine what it looked like. So I started relying on stereotypes, right? Things that I thought I knew. And um, that stereotype, the closest stereotype I had to my imagination, right, that could confirm my biases, was this old show called Little House in the Prairie, right? I, I literally had this idea that everywhere was like covered wagons and like dirt roads. And, you know, certainly those are, there are portions of Oregon and the American West that are like that, right? But it wasn't uh, anywhere near complete uh, the picture. And so the lesson for me was that when we don't put ourselves in new environments, when we don't stretch ourselves, the way that we fill in lack of information right, is through like stereotypes and things we think we know uh, about each other, uh, about our communities, right? It's, it's uh, and I started to call it kind of plastic patriotism, right? Um, and what I meant by that is, is like, we would pull like these things that just didn't make sense, like these stereotypes out of our heads. And we would say, this is how the world works, right? Um, but we never did like the hard work of like what I call real patriotism, which is like leaning in, learning things, right? Having courageous conversations, right? And so I, I often joke that um, uh, I made it to Oregon uh, despite my stereotypes. I saved my life, um, luckily, because those stereotypes didn't interfere with what I needed to do, which was to get out of Southern California. And for too many people in our world, right, on top of the burdens we have to, to bear uh, as working people or as marginalized communities or alienated, right, even our own stereotypes can serve to kill us, right? And we need to take them as seriously uh, as the as the systems that that put so much inequality and, and alienation on our lives. I think sometimes we give it too much of a harsh critique, but in the, in the U.S. we use a term kind of woke, right? Are you woke? Is this person woke? You, you know, you, you may have something, there may be similar terms in, in, in other countries, but it really means is a person awake, right? Are they aware of what's happening? And 
but sometimes it gets taken a, a, a little bit too far, right? And and this is where I think like you know we we uh, we stumble as as anti-fascist and as uh, anti-racist, which is uh, we expect folks to come uh, into our spaces um, in ways that are acceptable to us, right? And at a level that's acceptable to us. And so we miss huge swaths of folks. How do, how do we know that? Because I'm actually, a, a, that is my story, right? I did not grow up uh, as a politically left person, right? I would have never called myself anti-racist or, or anti-fascist. It's not how, how I grew up. I, you know, I, I remind folks that you know, regardless of our skin color, regardless of how we were treated, right? Uh, my generation grew up in a very conservative moment in America, right? And um, this is uh, this is what we're dealing with now is not conservatism, but we'll, we'll get to that in in a moment, right? But I grew up in a I grew up in the Reagan era, right? Uh, in Long Beach, California, in a naval town, right? A working poor kid, right? Let's think for a second what my politics likely were like, right? I wasn't, you know, my friends who were gay and lesbian, I wasn't defending them because I had a treatise on homophobia, right? I wasn't standing up to neo-Nazis because I had a deep understanding of structural racism and white nationalism and, and white supremacy and class consciousness, right? Um, I was just a young kid, right, who didn't want to be alienated, right, who wanted to be in community. And that community was under attack. I stood up for my friends, not because they were gay or lesbian, right? I'm going to be honest, not because they were Muslim, not because they were Jewish, not because they were Latino or immigrant. I stood up for them because I didn't like bullies, right? I, I just didn't like bullies. I didn't like people who wanted to be cruel to other people, right? Um, and I certainly wasn't going to, you know, I wouldn't allow it inside my house, right? I wasn't going to allow it inside my scene, which was the, the biggest house I had ever lived in, right? And um, I think that's the truth for most folks. We, we forget at the end of the day, most people don't want to sit and, and debate right, the, the politics and ideologies of life. And it's not just that they don't have time, right? That's part of it, right? Uh, people are working too hard uh, to have time to stop and think. But that's not just it, right? It's also like, it's not folks' interest. Most folks want to live, love, and work. They want to raise their children. They want a job that pays well. They want to be able to sit and barbecue with their friends on the weekend or pick up a game at the pub or, right? They want to go on vacation with their family, want to have hope when they retire, right? That their children have a little bit of, of a better life, right? That's what most people want in this world. And too many of us who are anti-fascist or anti-racist treat that as if it is something to look down on, right? Rather than there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, someone who gets to end, to live their life in that way is living a wonderful life, 
right? And so we often complicate things because we put all these extra barriers and, and expectations and qualifications on what it means for someone to be on our side. And because of that, we miss huge swaths of population. Folks who are, know something is wrong, right? They know something is wrong in the society. They are exhausted, right? They're like an exhausted middle. They don't know what to do. They don't want chaos. They actually want sustainability. They want, they want leaders who show confidence. They want leaders who aren't afraid, right, of inclusive governance, right? And we haven't figured out that equation. Uh, and we, um, we have become arrogant in our movement building, right? There is a, a level of arrogance um, that uh, could serve to help, right? destroy democratic practice, right? Uh, and in this country, uh, allow white nationalists uh, to assume more power uh, over our lives. And so I'm a, I'm a, I am proof, I am actual proof right now, right? Folks listening to this, um, I'll just say it again. I am proof that people can be moved, right? I am now the head of, a large civil rights organization in the United States uh, that uh, is one of the organizations that is doing leading work around race equity, uh, around countering white nationalism, right? And I did not start as anything resembling a red diaper baby, nor am I there now, right? Uh, but I, my work is just as valuable and just as impactful. And so is it for lots of folks out there who are not talking. I think, you know, it's really important for us. Um, and I want to, when I say us, I want to define what us is, right? Um, what I mean are um, anti-racist and anti-fascist on the political left. I want to be very defined about who I'm talking about for a second. Uh, so if you define yourself in that way, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. And I'm talking to myself. We have to get serious. Um, and when I mean serious, it means we have to stop with the performative drama, right? Um, we do not save our society. We do not save vulnerable communities through performative drama, right? We, we save our society from fascism, from white nationalism, by engaging in the very dreary, boring work, right? Of helping folks in our community build their power, right? And align their values. Uh, we get out of this by taking governance seriously, right? 
I, there's a term that's been going around, folks have been talking about it within kind of far right circles called accelerationist, right? Um, these are folks within the uh, far right who uh, just want to burn everything down, right? Um, that, is, that is their goal. That is why they are fighting for power. And there is a hard truth that we haven't admitted yet, which is on our side, within the left, within anti-racist and anti-fascist circles, we have our own accelerationists, right? They may not call themselves that, uh, but they act in the same manner. The only solution they ever have to any problem is to rip it up, right? To burn it down. The problem with that is when things get ripped up and burned down, right? The folks who actually suffer right, are the most vulnerable in our communities, right? The most vulnerable in our societies. Immigrants, refugees, people of color, Jews, right? Those are the folks who suffer. And so this idea that we're just gonna burn everything down is an immature politic, right? And it is no longer, if it ever was, anti-fascist, right? Or, or anti-racist, or, uh, anti right? We are in a moment, right? Where our societies, right? Are so weak and vulnerable to authoritarianism, right? And what we know about people, right? If you actually know people and you actually spend time with people, you get out of your ideological bubble, right? And go to the bowling alley, go sit at the pub, go sit, right, at the, at the, um, at the soccer match, right? Uh, but not in the well-paid seats, like, you know, in the stands where people are actually sitting, right? When you hang out with real people, what you find out is mostly what people want, right? Is they don't want chaos, right? And um, when they picked, right? When folks picked uh, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, what we need to understand is yes, there was misogyny, right? And yes, there was absolutely racism. Uh, but a number of folks voted for Trump simply because they wanted something different, right? And something they thought might not be chaotic to their lives, to their lives, right? And um, that wasn't the whole, but there was a segment of that population. And uh, we haven't figured out how to reach that population, right? Because when they look at us, what they see is just more chaos, right? We're not a real alternative because it's not really what most people are, and I'm not just talking about white folks, right? I'm talking about black folks, I'm talking about Asian American, Pacific Islanders, Latinos, right? Uh, people are not looking for more chaos in their lives, right? People are becoming homeless because they can't pay their medical bills, right? People are working three jobs, right, to pay rent, Right to pay the to pay the 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 monthly fee on their car. Right, uh, they're paying monthly because they went to school and came out of the United States with a hundred thousand dollars debt. Right, people are weighted under so much burden, 
And if our only answer to that burden is more and more chaos, rather than confidence and leadership, right? We've, we lost, right? We've, we've lost. And so my message to, um, you know, to ourselves, right? To those of us who see ourselves on the left and see ourselves as anti-fascist and anti-racist is, is simply this, stop with the performative drama, stop going to the same answers all the time. Things have changed. Um, this is not 1990. This is not 1980, right? This is 2020. Uh, and what we need to be doing to be accountable and transparent organizers and leaders uh, doesn't always look like a march, right? And should mostly not look like marches at this time. I'm not saying marches and mobilizations aren't important, but we have gotten to a place where we think this is the only form of power in a society. Right. And uh, that's that's laziness. Right. Um, and uh, you don't build a movement off of laziness. You build a movement by helping people, um, you know, hold their own power. Right. And help them alter relations between institutions by helping them build sustainable organizations uh, in their communities. That's how we. Uh, help change our society. And uh, we've become, frankly, a little too vanguardist, right? And, uh, but it's not even, you know, if I were going to get into that area of conversation, sorry, it's not even vanguardism. It's just arrogance, right? It's, we have become an arrogant, arrogant movement to our own detriment and um, to the detriment of this world. And I'll just say it frankly, right? Um, yes, Donald Trump did not win the popular vote. In fact, Hillary Clinton won the largest margins, uh, you know, I think, uh, a popular vote ever in the history of the U.S., right? Um, but you know what? Um, she still lost because that's not how our electoral process works, right? And we can change that process. We, don't, we, we can not like it, but it's not how it works. And so we have to make it work. And uh, we don't make it work uh, by drawing such a small circle around us, right? This, this, this silo. And if we continue to do that, uh, we can take the blame uh, for another four years of a very dangerous administration, um, just like we should take some of the blame uh, for the last four years, right? This is not all on the far right. It's not all on folks who voted uh, for Donald Trump. We failed. We failed America uh, in a big way. Uh, and until we acknowledge that um, and are honest about that, um, uh, we will continue to sit on the sidelines of a very historic moment. Thank you for listening to the Hope No Hate podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to get every episode directly to your device. If you enjoy listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen. Doing that really helps more people to discover our channel. Thank you as well to the members of Hope Not Hate. Your support makes our work, including this podcast, possible. If you want to join, head to hopenothate.org.uk and click the big red Become a Member button.